morning, Southbridge. Glad that you're here today. Thank you so much for coming and gathering and singing to our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you and just ask you to look at your worship program. There's a little card in there. We call it a connection card. If you'd fill it out, and we've got prayer requests on there and different things uh, to use that to communicate with us, that'd be great. We've got a gift for you that's waiting for you outside. And uh, it's wonderful to gather together as believers and be able to sing. I was telling the first service, we were singing these songs. You just can't do that in the car. You can't do that at home. There's something about corporate worship where you're singing next to somebody else who's on the same mission as you are uh, with a desire to, to love Jesus Christ. And we all fail and we all fall short. And we all have our weaknesses. Uh, but for God to then use us for his glory. And when you come together, it's one of the reasons why the scripture says don't forsake the assembly of believers because there's an encouragement just from being together. And so I hope you hope you've been encouraged to uh, just being together today before we even open up the scripture, before we even sang songs. And uh, we're glad that you're here. And we've got a special privilege today. We're going to be commissioning uh, a missions team, a short-term missions team that we have here at Southbridge that's going to be going to Madagascar, Africa. And I just want to ask them to come on up here. This is Bill and Judy Grimmy and your team that's here. I see some different folks uh, that are in here. And they're going to be headed out to, uh, maybe you've seen this before, send out teams to Madagascar, Africa. We've got some long-term missionaries. And by long-term, I mean they're there for the rest of their lives as far as uh, their plan is concerned. And they've gone to this place in Madagascar uh, where there's people that literally have never heard of Jesus Christ. They've seen hundreds of people come to Christ there. And churches are getting started, and, and a great work is happening. There's more and more missionaries that are there now. They've been there for five years. And Bill's gone on several trips there. I was on the first trip with you. You were our leader then. And you've uh, led some different teams that have done uh, medical stuff, discipleship stuff. And will you tell us a little bit about this team? Who do we have here? And, and uh, what is it you all are doing? I don't know if it's on there. Let me see. It's on. All right, we're good. You're on. This is my wife, Judy. This is Dale, Joe, and Linda. And there's two other people that aren't here. They actually are, um, live in St. Croix, but they've been several times. Oh, that's rough. They get, um. <laughs> they get special treatment because she's a physician's assistant and well-known in the villages now. Um, but uh, a few things we're going to do that are different this time. We're going to do a lot of the same things, but we're also going to be uh, teaching villagers how to share their salvation story. And then we're asking them, the very first meeting we have, we're asking them to have a workshop and practice with each other and then start praying for who they want to go share their story with that day or the next day. And uh, so we're doing our 10X program in Basatra and Kilimari, just like we're doing here. Um, and so uh, what we're going to do then the next afternoon, we're, they're literally going hut to hut to invite people to come to see the Jesus film that night. And we'll be going with them. Uh, to those huts and out in the fields to see the men and uh, show the Jesus film that night. Uh, another thing that we're doing different this time is we're going into a totally unreached village. Uh, but what's really exciting for us is we're going with some of the leaders of the very village we've just taught how to share their salvation story. They have already talked to those people and have opened the door for us to go in there. And so that'll be very exciting to uh, hear their, them tell their stories in their own language to this uh, new unreached village and then we'll get to share our story and some lessons as well. And finally, my wife's going to be staying in uh, Tuliar with Jody Waller and they've got a whole lot of women's and youth ministry they're planning, but one particular one that's really exciting is Jody's been preparing the way right now uh, for them when Judy gets there to go out in the community and start sharing uh, the good news of Jesus with the least of these, with prostitutes and homeless women and uh, some orphans and wherever God leads those groups of women to go in the city. And Judy's going to be able to continue on that. We're staying uh, a few extra weeks in Madagascar. And so Jody and Judy will continue to do that uh, through our time there. So we're very excited about that. That's awesome. We're excited for you. We're going to pray for them, lay hands on them. One of the things we're doing is saying we identify with you when we lay our hands on you and pray for you. I love what Bill said about the fact that they're basically doing 10x there. 10x, for those of you who are new to Southbridge, as we challenged everybody about a year ago, for over the next 10 years, we'll be praying about 10 people that you would reach for Christ and have one. And so then we got it happening in villages of people that have never heard the gospel before. And so seeing that, that vision spread is encouraging. And so, in a sense, each one of you that has a person you're praying for has a connection with some of these folks. And through your ministry, we're kind of going with you. And we're praying for you. And one of the things we do as a church is we just ask that you kind of symbolically put your hands out. What you're doing when you do that is we're saying we commission them. We send them out in the name of Jesus Christ. We also send them out in the name of our church, Southbridge Fellowship. And having been there, I know 
people in Madagascar, they know who we are, Southbridge, which is <laughs> interesting. They call and us our friends, from, our friends from far away. Yes. That's how they call And so they, they know some of you. And uh, we're going to be praying for them, praying for their hearts, praying for people uh, to come to Christ. We're going to be praying for um, their trip and all the different provisions and things that need to take place. If you are in an e-group with one of these folks or you're one of their leaders, if you're a pastor in our church, an elder, um, if you would just come up here and we're going to lay hands on them physically. And for the rest of you, just because of numbers, what is, if you just, one of our traditions is just kind of put your hands out as if you're laying hands on them. And I'll pray since I have the microphone, but uh, we'll all pray together for them as we send them out and commission them to reach this world for Jesus Christ in Madagascar, Africa. So let me pray. Father, I come before you. We lift up our friends here um, with the Grimmies and, and each one who's on this team, even our friends in St. Croix. And I just pray, God, that you would do a work in their hearts, not only through them, but in them while they're there. God, that you would transform them, that you would change them, that you would give them eyes to see these people the way you see them. That, Father God, they would see the needs. They would, And I pray that as people look at them, they would see in their eyes your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that they would go as a representative of you. I pray as they go, and we send them out as a church, that you would go before them, you'd go behind them, you'd be preparing them, you'd be protecting them, you'd be their comforter, be their guide, be their encourager, and be the one that gives them the boldness and the courage to step out by faith into whatever situation you have for them. I know they have an itinerary, but you have an itinerary that may be different. And we hold them with open hands as, as they hold those things with open hands. And God, provide for them, provide finances that might still be needed, provide prayer, people that need to be needed, be part of this, provide safety on their travel. And I pray you'd put exact people, whether it's sitting down at an airport, in an airplane, uh, in a village, under a tree, in a hut, the exact people you want them to come into contact with. And I pray for those people you'd be preparing their hearts for the words that you will share through each one that's standing here right now. Help us to support them and go with them on this journey through prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Love y'all. Thanks. And we send out and commission that team. And that passage of scripture we're looking at today, interestingly enough, is Acts chapter 13. We've been going through the book of Acts as a church. If you're a guest with us today, we started in January. So we've been eight months. We're in chapter 13. If you look through it, there are 28 chapters. It gives you an idea of about how long this is going to take us to go through. And chapter 13 is really a transition in the book. It's a commissioning passage of the first short-term mission trip that ever went out. And it's Paul and Barnabas. And they're going out to a place called Cyprus. And so Cyprus, uh, if you didn't know, in the first century, was actually thought of kind of like we think of Hawaii or we think of, you know, Bahamas. And so doesn't that put a whole new perspective on missions? <laughs> Some of you are feeling called right now. Hawaii, mission trip. I, I think I'd do that. Because most of us don't we think that you automatically have to go some jungle and eat grub worms and that tell people about Jesus or go to Iceland and be in a igloo somewhere far away from everybody. And, and that's what we oftentimes think of. That's not what's happening here in this passage. But there's a reason why they were going. It was God's direction and God, the way that he had worked in people's lives. And God's got a plan for each one of us here today. And we're going to talk about that. If you have your Bible, Acts chapter 13 is where we're going to be. So you can go ahead and turn there right now. If you've got an iPad, copy of the scriptures, whatever you're going to use. Acts chapter 13, we'll read the first few verses. We're going to, Lord willing, make it through verse 12 today. And as you're turning there in your copy of the scripture, let me just ask you, have you ever heard this phrase before? It's the same difference. It's really made up of those two key words, same, different. So what is it? Is it the same or is it different? And because we use it in our vocabulary, you kind of know what I mean when I say it, but aren't those contradictory terms? We put them together and they kind of work together. It'd be like, for instance, if you said to me, you know, football season's about to start, I was talking to somebody out in the lobby about their fantasy football team, and and say you decided you were going to have me over uh, to watch football, we're going to go tailgating together, whatever it was, and there's a bunch of other people coming too, I had never been before. And so I said to you, well, what should I wear? You know, it was real casual, or people kind of dressed up, what? And you said, just wear pants. Oh, okay. Well, for me, when I think of pants, I'd think of like just a pair of jeans, something like that. But for you, it probably depends on who you are and what you meant in pants. You could be from Europe, and so you could mean Euro man pants, which would look something like this. A little tighter around the ankle and in other various places. And then it could also be uh, that you're kind of a redneck and so you want camel pants. That's what you mean. You've got you to have pockets on them. You've got to be able to carry stuff, utilitarian pants. Or maybe they're Euro camel pants. Did you know they made those? They're Euro camel pants, by the way. There's redneck Europeans, apparently. And so we have those pants. Or maybe because it's a football game, you meant wear the most comfortable pants you have. In fact, if you've got lazy man pants, which, by the way, they sell, then wear lazy man pants. And here they are. I found these online. They've got a pocket for the remote controls, multiple. They've got plastic wear in case someone brings you food while you're wearing them. You're already, hey, I'm ready. I got a knife and fork. There I am. And so you could have been any of those pants. If you just said, I just wear pants. What kind of pants? It could have been any of these. 
Same difference. They're pants. Or if I said to you, hey, let's go to lunch after church today. You want to go over to this new burger place in Briar Creek, Elevation Burger? Haven't been there yet, but it's a new burger place. Let's go check it out. You get a burger, I get a burger. And what if they bring my burger and it looks like this, but they bring your burger and it looks like this? We both got a burger. Same difference. Or what if you said to me, and hopefully you never will, but what if you said, Scott, will you come over um, this weekend and and feed my cat? Because I'm going to be out of town. (laughs) Don't ask because I don't want to have to tell you no. But if you did, let's say it happened. And say I said yes. It just felt led by the Spirit in that moment that that was a way for me to wash your feet. And so I come over and I go to feed your cat and I open up the door and you've got an exotic animal in there. You've got a panther or a lion. I'm closing the door, calling you up and saying, you said you had a cat. Ah, same difference. It's a cat. Or it's like my wife, uh, she, she came up to me this week, and I don't know, husbands, you've ever been doing this before, but I was doing something else, and she started telling me while I was doing something else. And so I think you can forgive if I'm half listening in, in that situation. So I'm already busy, and she starts telling me something. Like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. She said, I'm going to take the girls on a field trip. And then she said, I'm going to take the girls on a field trip to Paris. Woof! Like all of a sudden, she had my attention. Lots of questions start running through your mind. Who's funding this thing? What do you mean? You're taking four kids to Paris? How, am I invited? Like, am I even allowed to come? And then, and then she said, yeah, we're going to go over to this village on Falls of the Noose. It's called Lafayette Village. I don't know if you've ever been there. Kind of a European little place. She said, we're going to go there. We're going to have crepes for lunch. And then we may have some gelato ice cream afterwards. And then they've got a mini Eiffel Tower. And we're going to take some pictures out of the Eiffel Tower. Which, by the way, pictures are free there. So I was thinking, we can fund this. It's the same. But It's different same difference and you've probably heard that phrase before and i was thinking about that phrase this week and that phrase really is a great description of the christian life because think we all want to know think about this we all want to know what god's plan is for us and do you know the reality is that god has the same plan for each of us if you're a believer in jesus christ and that's who i'm talking to today if you're a follower of jesus god has a plan for you it's the same plan for each one of us that you'd make disciples. Matthew chapter 28. Go into all nations. Make disciples. Doesn't get any clearer than that. Once they've heard about Jesus, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And how do you help them grow? Teach them everything you know. Teach them everything that I taught you. That's what it is to make a disciple. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It's the outline of our book that we're going through. And what it says is this. That you, all of you, every believer, you will be my witnesses in the world that you live in right now. And as I expand your influence, And when you travel about and go to other places, even to the uttermost parts of the world, that's what Acts 1-8 says. That that's my plan for your life. And it's the same for all of us, but it's different, isn't it? It's the same for each of us, but it's different for all of us. Because all of us aren't the same age. We don't have the same talents. We don't have the same abilities. We haven't been put in the same situation. We don't have the same story. For some of you, uh, you had this kind of educational background. For others, it was that. For some of you, this kind of economic status. For others, that. For some of you, you've got this kind of physical ability. For others, that. For some of you, mental ability. Others, this. For different people, we've all been made different and put in different situations, in different families, with different stories, in different circumstances, and different abilities. And so it's the same master plan, but it's different for each of us. And so today we're going to talk about same difference. It's the same difference. It's the same, but it's unique at the very same time. And that's what we're going to see in our passage. In Acts chapter 13, in verse 1, I'll start reading. It's a commissioning passage, as I said, of Paul and Barnabas going on the first missions trip that we see in the book of Acts. In fact, in the Bible. As they go out, and their hands are laid on them by their church, a church in Antioch, and they go out and they do a work. It's the same work they were already doing. It's the same work other people are doing, but it's unique, and it's different for them. What we're having here in Acts chapter 13, it's really a new section. What's happening is a new section. In Acts chapter 12, we saw Peter get supernaturally delivered. We saw God deal with people pleasers as an Herod situation. And then we go and we transition and Peter's no longer the main character. Now it's a guy, we're going to call him Paul today. He's in this passage, he's called Saul, which is his Hebrew name. And then it transitions to Paul, which is his Roman name. It's not a new name for him. He's always had both names. But he's Paul, oftentimes called that throughout the scriptures. Look what it says. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And then we get a list of the leaders of the church of Antioch. There are five of them. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, that's Herod Anipus, from the Gospels, the guy who cut off John the Baptist's head, and Saul, Paul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. 
So that af- and so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Kind of like what we just did with the Madagascar team. And the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, that's who's actually sending them, went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. And Cyprus is Barnabas' hometown. And we read about that in Acts chapter 4. And they're going to this place. It's their first missionary journey. And what we see here at the very beginning is this commissioning passage. But did you notice what's happening? In the midst of names that are there and geography that's there, there's some key statements. And one of the key statements is that God had set them apart. He's going to use them for something unique. And what is it he set them apart for? Look at verse 2. For the work to which I have called them. He had a specific work for them. Now he had a work for all of us, and they were already doing this work, making disciples, being his witnesses. But he had set them apart for a special plan. And the same thing's true for you and for me. And that's what God does. That's our main point today. We're set apart for God's plan. And it's a special plan for each of us. It's the same for all of us but it's unique for each of us. It's the same difference. Set apart for His plan. Now some of us, when we hear being set apart, we might think to ourselves, well, set apart's not me. I'm, I'm kind of normal. But, you know, like missionaries, they're set apart. And we kind of put, you know, missionary, people that would travel around the world and go into some difficult circumstances to tell people about Jesus. It's kind of like, those are the special Christians. And I was talking to a friend about this the other day. In fact, a person who works with lots of different people, travels all over the world, and he said, you know, most people, when they think about missionaries, they think one of two things. They think they're either weird or they're special. And by weird, and some of you may know what I'm talking about, it's like, they just don't fit here, so let's send them somewhere else to tell people about Jesus. And special... Special means that they probably have some special gifting. Maybe they learn languages really easy. Or maybe they just have this passion for the Bible, love for Jesus. It's unlike anything we've seen in other people. And so they're so special. And then what happens is the majority of us who aren't going across the world to tell people about Jesus, we think, I hope I'm not weird. (laughs) We all are. But I hope I'm not weird. And I don't feel very special. So therefore, that really just applies to them. The reality is that God set each one of us apart for a plan that he has for us. For those of you who have yet to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, he set you apart to come to know his son, Jesus Christ. It's his desire, his will, that all would come to repentance. All would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For those of you who know Jesus Christ, he set you apart for his work. And it's the mega picture, the great commission, by the way, the megas, macro commission, for all of us commission, is we make disciples. But there's a micro, there's details that we've been set apart for, the work to which he has called you and me. And we see it throughout the scriptures. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, this is an interesting verse. He says, but when God who set me apart from birth. Wait a minute. If you know Paul's story, you know the first part of his life, he spent persecuting the church, actually having Christians killed. And it doesn't say he was set apart at conversion. It was from birth God had a plan for him. And he'd use even that other stuff. And he called him by his grace. Well, see, that's Paul. Paul's called set apart in this passage. He's set apart in that passage. Paul's like super Christian. That's different. Well, you read in the Old Testament too. Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah chapter 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. That's the same is true for you. You've been fearfully, wonderfully made. God made you uniquely and special. Gave you a unique story. Every one of us is different. And God set each one of us apart for his work. And we see God setting them apart for a special work right here in this passage in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. It's just a list of names, really. And if I'm candid with you, I'll, I'll tell you, when I read the Bible on my own, like I'm not preparing for a sermon, and some of you know what I'm talking about, devotional reading, or just reading through the Bible to get a grasp of something, or looking for God to give you a word of encouragement. I come to a verse like this, and it's got a bunch of names that I don't usually say. And then at the end, it's got geography, right? And you ever read the Old Testament? So-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so, and they lived in Aya, <laughs> some kind of Aya, with a bunch of ites that they had to fight, and all that stuff's happening. When I come across verses like that, a lot of times I just skim past them. I'm just kind of, yep, 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 what are you trying to say? But I think there's something to learn from this list. So let's not go by it too fast. Read the list with me again. This is in the church at Antioch. There were prophets and teachers. First name, Barnabas. Next name, Simeon, called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Menean, and we get this parenthetical statement, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now some scholars say, But this is an illustration of the universality of the gospel. And by universality, I don't mean that all people will be saved. What I mean is that the gospel is for all people. And because what we see here is an incredibly diverse list of people. 
We already know two of their stories, Barnabas and Saul. Talk about, you couldn't have guys that are more different, right? You've got Barnabas, who's a guy we originally met in Acts chapter 4. You can read that on your own if you want. He's a guy who's been a part of the church since the very beginning. He's kind of the clean version of, uh, of, a, trans, uh, of a transformation story. He, you know, in the church, doing the right things. What we see of him, he's, he's serving, he's giving. He's the example, right before Ananias and Sapphira, the bad example of giving. He's the good example of giving. He sells some land that he has, gives all the money to the church so that they can meet needs of other people. Then they nickname him Barnabas, which means encourager. And then what happens from there, we see him in Acts chapter 9. After Saul gets converted, because Saul's situation, he's the exact opposite of Barnabas. He hates the church. He's a persecutor of the church. He's trying to go and arrest Christians. He's a first century Osama bin Laden. He's a terrorist. But he thinks he's doing it in the name of God. Sound familiar? And he's going and he's trying to do these things to destroy the church. And then God says, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul got a plan for you and this isn't it It radically transforms him and the christians are going i don't think so and it's barnabas who comes in and he's a friend he's living out his christianity totally different guys and then we get some other names of guys we're not as familiar with look back at the passage simeon called niger niger would be a characteristic of him probably it's a it's a word that's borrowed from latin it means black he probably has dark skin some people believe that he's from africa perhaps in fact, some scholars say, and it's debatable, we don't know for sure, you can't prove it, you can't really disprove it, that this might be Simon of Cyrene. Which, if you know the Gospels, it's a familiar story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, there's a guy who carries the cross. And what happens is that, that Jesus, he's been beaten, he's been flogged, he's mocked, persecuted, spit on, and they give him this cross beam to carry, and he can't do it. It's physically, it's too much. And there's this guy who had come from Africa who was there to worship in Jerusalem and some Roman soldiers grab a hold of him and pull him and force him. Matthew says, forced him to carry the cross. This guy doesn't want to touch the cross. That's a despicable criminal that would be crucified on a cross. And he's a Jew and he's coming to worship. And God had a different plan. And God brought him face to face with the cross. Now he's a leader in the church. Talk about a guy who has a story who was forced to come face to face literally with the cross. And then you've got another guy in here. Lucius, we don't know much about. But uh, you look at this other guy. Menean? And it says, parenthetically, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, who's Herod Anipus from the, the Gospels. We see him in all the Gospels. He's the guy who cut off John the Baptist's head. He's the guy who, when Jesus was on trial, was part of, really, the conspiracy to have Jesus crucified. And, and this guy grew up in his home. It says he was reared with him. The word that's used there actually means that he was nursed from the same woman. He's probably the adopted brother of Herod, the foster brother. And he grows up in the same home as the guy who's going to be a part of Jesus being crucified, and now this guy is a leader in the church. If there's nothing else to be learned from reading this list of names, it's this. God uses more than just one type of person. God uses a variety, a plethora, a bountiful, a ton, a lot of different types of people. Same mission, different stories, same difference. I mean, I could illustrate this. I could walk around our church and illustrate this. I could walk up to different people, just put my hands on them, say, hey, tell me your story. What's your story? And how's, what's, how are you talking about Jesus? Are you sharing, how, why do you love people? What's, and it would all look different. I mean, I could walk up to just leaders in our church. I could go up to Bill Grimmie, who was up here, who's leading the, the missions trip to Madagascar, and, and if I asked you, or if I asked him to share a story, you know what he'd say? He'd say, you know what? I didn't come to Christ until I was later in life. I was uh, married to the lovely wife, Judy, who you saw up here. I had two kids. He was living the American dream. Working in corporate America, worked for a computer company. And really, if you looked at him from the outside, you wouldn't look at him and go, man, this guy's desperate. He needs Jesus. Let's go get him. No. But his neighbor invited him to Bible study. Started going to this Bible study, then eventually went to the church. And at the church came to Christ. God rescued him out of the American dream into something more, which is what he had set him apart for. And, and then I could walk up to another leader in our church. I could walk up to Jim Hendren. You guys, some of you know Jim. If you've been to Celebrate Recovery on Thursday nights, when you first go, he gives the opportunity. You can come and, no matter who's sharing their story, you can come and hear his story. And he'll tell you his story. Growing up and kind of the, you know, Mr. Big Man on campus, all-American kind of guy, but he was doing it to keep people at a distance. He didn't want them to know about his pain and his insecurity. And he'll tell you he got involved with cocaine and it was a downward spiral. It got so bad he owed some people so much money. Now still living a white collar life, right? He's living in Cary in a nice big house. Said there was, there was a night where guys were climbing up a wall behind his house to break into his house and kill him because he owed him so much money. At a point in his life where he wanted to kill himself, 
had to have somebody call the police. He wouldn't kill himself. He lied to so many people. He told me he had to put a list. He had to put it on a list, all the lies he had told, because he couldn't remember all of his own lies. So if he was going to talk to somebody, he had to read. What did I tell this person last time I talked to them? And God grabbed a hold of his life and rescued him out of that. See, Bill's story, Jim's story, they're the same, but they're different. We walk up to other people. Danny Lotz was talking to in our first service, the elder in our church. His dad used to take him to the mission in New York City to tell, talk about Jesus every week. Regardless of what was going on that week, talk about Jesus. Preach to drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless people. And then John Cullen, who shared his story recently in Celebrate Recovery, his dad was an alcoholic. So diversity, even in our leadership. Executive pastor, one of our elders, totally different stories. But it's the same story that God rescued them out of these situations Danny could have just grown up his whole life in church, knowing the answers, doing the right things, and never having an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and being revolutionized and changed. Bill Grimmie could have just lived the American dream. Jim Hendred, but God stepped in. Bill Grimmie, but God stepped in. Menean is growing up in a home with the guy who chops off the head of John the Baptist and has a part in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But God stepped in, changed his life. Simon of Cyrene, he's on his way to worship how he thinks he's supposed to worship, going to the temple in Jerusalem, but God has a Roman soldier grab him and bring him face to face with the cross. Saul, he thinks he's doing God a favor, persecuting the church, but God grabs a hold of his life. And what about you? You have a but God moment in your life? See, we read about it in Scripture. Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 that we all are dead in our trespasses and sins. For you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's talking to all the different people in the church in Ephesus. He's talking to us. It doesn't matter if you're living the American dream or if you're self-destructing. You're dead and you're, you're separated from God spiritually. But then verse 4 says, But because of His great love for us, God. And so I don't know what your story is. A clean version? A dirty version? There's got to be a conversion. There's got to be a but God moment. Some of you here maybe grew up in church and you're a moral person and you think you got it all figured out, but here's the reality. If you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, and I don't mean you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, did something out of wanna. I'm talking about he grabbed a hold of your life and rescued you from yourself. Then you're in trouble. Maybe you're destroying yourself. You know it. You know, you're out partying on the weekend, you're doing this stuff, but you think if I stop, I'm going to lose my friends, or if I do this, then I won't be able to have these experiences you don't realize what you're already missing out on. It's a relationship with Christ. But those of you who have received that relationship with Christ, do you realize that God set you apart for a special work for Him? Now, if you haven't trusted Christ, I'm not talking to you because what He set you apart for is that you'd come to Christ, that you would have salvation. But those of you who know salvation, it's like what it said, what it said here about Paul and Barnabas. It says in verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord had set them apart. He says, The Holy Spirit says, Set them apart for me. For what? The work to which I have called them. Take these two guys. There's five of them. So the other three guys are not... God's using them too. Look at a special ministry for two guys and think about how different their stories are. Paul and Barnabas. One guy, clean version. One guy, not clean version. Both had a conversion. And both got to set them apart now for a special work. The same thing's true for you and me. In fact, in that same chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, that says that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in his mercy, saved us by his grace, he says this in verse 10. For those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he says, for we are God's workmanship. The Greek word poema means a mosaic, that we're woven together, like he wove us together in the womb, that he's woven you together through your experiences, through your DNA. He knows exactly how tall you should be. He knows exactly what color hair you should have, what features and, and characteristics are true in your personality, in your physical appearance, in your gifting, in your life experiences. He's woven that all together. You're created in Christ Jesus. Here's why. To do good works which God prepared before the beginning of time for you. Here's the problem. A lot of Christians don't do those good works. We think, you know, I prayed, I'm on my way to heaven, I'm all set, I got that taken care of. And we say that we want to know what God wants for our lives, we want to know God's will for our lives, but really, we want to know, is He going to do what I want Him to do for my life? And so we just kind of do our thing, we just kind of live our life, and we go AWOL on the works that God has for us. I saw an illustration of this a few weeks ago, I was in Ecuador in the, in the jungle, and we were getting toured around by a, a guide that was from the University of Washington, he was a just college student. 
and biology major, and he's walking us through. He's showing us different trees and plants, which was great. And then he was showing us animals, which he actually showed us. Uh, I mentioned earlier, if you had an exotic cat, showed us this Bengal-looking kind of cat. And he said the reason why they would have them at this place that we were at was because um, people would try to keep them as pets. <laughs> Bad idea. And, and then they would leave for a week. And when they leave for a week and come back, then the cat thought the house belonged to them. And so it would attack them. Bad idea. And so he's showing us this cat. We walk up. The things start growling at us. I'm ready to go. And then, and then as we're standing there, on the, there's a fence separating us, which is good news. And then there was a, a ledge. And on this ledge, all these ants were running by. I mean like thousands and thousands of ants. And they were carrying these pieces of leaf that would be like two or three times the size of the ant. And so we started to look at it, and the whole group just started watching. And there was just leaves like running by, and, we started, and they were coming from way up this tree that was like 60 feet tall. There was another tree on the other side that was like 60 feet tall, and they're all running from the tree and going into this spot. And we started watching it, and it was crazy how much work they were doing. And then the guy that was the biology major said to us, told us what kind of ants they were, and he said, it's really interesting what they're actually doing is they don't eat those leaves. See, I just assumed they ate the leaves. So they take them into their underground tunnel and they bury them in the ground and there's a fungus, an underground mushroom that eats the leaf and then they eat the mushroom. I saw that and I thought, that's cool. They're smart. Like, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, and then remember the, the Proverbs and the Proverbs talk about the ant that works hard and stores up food and, and it's, it's a rebuke to some of us that are, that are lazy in the, in the Proverbs. And I'm thinking, that's just like the Bible. I'm watching the Bible happen here as, as we're watching this. And then the biologist guy said, he said, but notice... Only about 20% of the ants are actually doing anything. And I started looking really close. I actually saw an ant that was carrying a leaf with another ant on top of it. You freeloader, right? And then you started looking and you saw there'd be like 100 ants run by and like 20 of them were carrying leaves. The rest of them were just running around, being busy, just running around. And he said, 20% of the ants do all the work. And I was like, have you been to church? Like, if you've been around, if you're not new to church, you know this is true. 20% of the people do the work. And then I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking to myself, why is this, why are these ants so much like the church? And why is the church the way that it is? And there's, there's a multi-level answer. There, it's a layered answer. Here's, one of the reasons is, there are just some lazy Christians. Okay, there are just people that are just, you can serve me, you can do everything for me, take care of me, and I, just, I show up, that's what I do. It's, a, it's, it's like the guy, the ant that's riding on top of another leaf. I'll break your back riding around, dude. You just do all the work. Lazy Christians. And you know what? If you're a lazy Christian, you're visiting our church today, thanks for coming this one time. It's awesome having you. You'll leave eventually anyways, that's what happens. The other reason is, there are a lot of people that aren't Christians, they're in church. And they're like the ants that run around and they're trying to look the part. And if everybody fooled, and you know what? If you fool everybody, the joke's on you, Jack. It's not a joke, though. Who cares if what I think, and who cares what everybody else thinks? You're going to stand before God one day. And you faked everybody out into thinking that you were on mission for Him, that you were busy? That's scary. There's some people that are in the crowd, and they just don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. What am I supposed to do? What does God want for me? And I'll go back to our passage. Go back to the passage here. How did they know what to do? Look at the passage. Verse 2. It says they're worshiping the Lord and fasting. And so they're seeking, they're fasting, they're seeking God's direction, they're seeking His guidance. And some people, uh, they will do that. And they'll say, God, just show me your will. Just tell me what I'm going to do. And it's like we expect God to just magically show us something. Like move to, plant a church in New York City or move to something. Go on the short-term trip to Madagascar. And we think this is going to show up and do that. Don't miss, they were worshiping. It doesn't just mean they're gathered together and singing songs. Maybe they were singing songs. The word for worship here, it's actually in classical Greek, what it means is this. It's to do public service without getting paid. So do something sacrificial, a giving of yourself. Oftentimes in the scripture, now classical Greek would be how it was used at this time in secular society, but in the Bible, the way this word's oftentimes used, it's used of the priest, the Levitical priest in the Old Testament, and the service they would do in the temple. They're serving other people. And you look at Paul and Barnabas, the guys that are being sent here, it's not like that it was just like they were sitting around waiting for God to tell them what to do. They were already doing this stuff. You read about Barnabas. Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, he's giving sacrificially. He's, he's putting his own reputation out there for the sake of others, for their benefit. He doesn't gain something by getting Paul into the church. He's serving. And then you see uh, Saul, and you read his story. Acts chapter 9, he comes to Christ. Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Read it on your own later. Acts chapter 9, verse 20. It says, at once he went into the synagogues and began to preach. So he comes to Christ. He spends some time with Christians learning the differences between Judaism and Christianity. But then he goes out and he starts serving. 
You see, what some of us do is say, well, I just want to know God's will for my life. Let me tell you something. About 90% of God's will has already been written down for you. It's in the scriptures. Here's a basic overview. Love God, love people, make disciples. That's God's plan for your life. If you're not doing that, don't kid yourself into thinking that you actually want to know what his will is for you and what college to go to and who to marry, what color car to buy, whether you should live in D.C. or RDU or out west. Don't, don't kid yourself. You don't want to know that. Do you know what you want to know? You want to know whether God's plan and your plan are the same. You don't want to know his plan because he's already told you his plan and you're not doing that. And so if you're not doing what he already says, then why are you going to all of a sudden start doing when he tells you something else? He tells us clearly in the scripture, here's what you're to do, love one another. Here's what you're to do, love me with all your heart, make disciples. And he gets detailed too. He says, it's God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's God's will that you place your faith in Jesus Christ because he's not willing that any should perish. He says some direct statements. It's God's will that you'd be led by the Spirit, not drunk with wine, not drawn in, not, your decisions aren't tainted by everything else. But you know what? Many of us as Christians, it's such a joke the way that we actually live. I do the same thing. We're secular, we're humanistic, and we try to baptize our life in Bible verses and morality and friendliness. But we're doing the exact same thing that people that we know that don't have any relationship with Jesus Christ. We're just doing our own thing. If you want to know what God has for you, then get busy doing what God has already clearly told you and he reveals to you as you live out this process, the minute details. It's not all of a sudden he just drops something magically on you. That's not what happened here. And notice here he doesn't tell them where to go. He doesn't give them details. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. That's what he says. The, what's the work? Big picture, make disciples. It's the same for all of us. Same thing he has for you and for me. I love this statement that John MacArthur made. I read this week. Read this week. It says, An important feature in discerning God's will for the future is to do his will in the present. You do what he has for you now, and then he shows you as you walk with him. As you walk in the Holy Spirit. We did a series about a year ago, last summer, called The Fruit of the Spirit. We talked about peace, patience, kindness. And what we learned is this, that peace is a moment-by-moment peace. As you walk in the Spirit, you have peace. Because you can have peace. Can't you have peace one moment? Oh, honey, I love you. I'll see you at church. Get out of my way. I've got to preach. You know, I'm driving on the way to church. It's like moment-by-moment you can have peace. Moment-by-moment patience. Moment-by-moment self-control. Moment-by-moment love. It's as you walk in the Spirit. And where do we get our guidance from the Scripture? Psalm 119 says this, that God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It does not say that it's a spotlight. It says that it's a lamp. It doesn't illuminate 20 years from now what you're supposed to be doing. It shows you as you walk today. Think about a lamp. If you're holding a lamp, and it's a lamp unto your feet. You take a step, and then the next step's lit up. And then the next one. And then the next one. And the next one, and you depend on him through the whole process. And so you want to know what God has for you, then do what God has for you. Same for all of us. And it'll be unique, and it will be different for each one of us. And God set you apart for that unique plan. For some of you, you stay at home with your kids. Okay, then make disciples of those kids. Same, different. Some of you are executives at companies, and, and maybe next week they'll send you out. And they're going to send you to Germany, and they're going to send you to Australia. They're going to send you to China. They're going to send you to wherever, Canada. They're going to send you somewhere. And you could be deceived into thinking that my role is simply to make money at this job so that I can tithe, give 10% of that money back to the church, and they can do the ministry. Well, that's true. The Bible does say to do that. But that's not all. There's more to it than that. You know, when you're in Canada or when you're in Germany, your company, I don't care if it's IBM, if it's BD, I don't care if it's you know tech industry, John Deere, whoever it is, they just sent you on a mission trip. And you represent Jesus Christ on mission for him with whoever you're coming into contact with there. The same's true if you just drive into RTP. The same's, in fact, true if you're unemployed. If you're unemployed, do you think that your task is just to get the next job, or do you think that maybe God allowed this to happen so you can come into contact with people you'd never normally come into contact with? What about retired people? Does God still have them on mission? Well, maybe God's plan for you was that you'd live and do, you know, up until you're about 60 or 65, you'd be on mission for him. And then, hopefully you saved up enough money, you can play golf for the next several years, kick it into neutral, and wait till you die. Well, you're laughing. People do this. Or walk along the beach, and I think John Piper says, collect seashells for Jesus. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being retired. There's nothing wrong with being on the golf course if you know why you're there to make disciples. See, God's got each one of us at a different spot But it's the same plan, same difference. 
And he commissions each one of us to go out. He says, go, make disciples. Each one of us, all disciples. You will be my witnesses. And Raleigh, and Durham, and Chapel Hill, and, and whether you're a you know, physical trainer, or whether you're a physical assistant, you know, at, a, at a doctor's office, whether you're a physician's assistant, it doesn't matter. God's got a, a plan for you, and he's going to use you in those specific spots, same master plan. But, don't think that it's going to be easy. Because you will face opposition. That's what we see in the next part of this passage. They go on this trip, and they go to Cyprus, a place that was thought of like Hawaii or like the Bahamas. But it's not easy. Why do they go there? Well, notice in the text, the Holy Spirit never says go to Cyprus. Doesn't say go to Madagascar. Doesn't say go to this spot. But maybe they went because that's where Barnabas is from. And Barnabas says, I know the culture. Maybe he's just burdened for people that are there. Maybe he still has family that thinks that they're religious enough that they'll get into heaven. Maybe he still has people he went to high school with that are doing the same things they were doing in high school, only now they're doing the adult version. And he's saying, I think if I tell them about Jesus, then maybe they'll listen. And so they go to Cyprus, probably because of a burden that was on Barnabas' heart. He says, Saul, come with me. It says in verse 5, When they arrived at Salamis, that's a big city there, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And John was with them. It's John Mark, a guy who writes the Gospel of Mark, and we'll hear about him a little bit later. John was with them as their helper. Verse 6, they traveled through the whole island (coughs) until they came to Paphos. That's the capital city. So they went through the whole place from one side to the other side is what the geography just told us. Luke doesn't tell us about one encounter they have until this one. Until what I'm about to read in this verse. Look at what it says. He came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Ding, ding, ding. Things are about to go bad. There's about to be opposition. Some Christians think that if I just do what God wants me to do, it will be easy. It will be comfortable. It will not be difficult. Luke doesn't tell us about the revivals. He doesn't tell us about all the people that came to Christ. He doesn't tell us all those details. Instead, the first missionary journey, the first story he tells us is opposition. Because here's the deal. God set you apart for a plan, but Satan will oppose you, and his number one tool is deception. He did it in the garden. He does it in temptation of Jesus. He even uses one of Jesus' disciples, Peter. He says, listen, you don't have to go to the cross. God wants you comfortable. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You can have goodness apart from God. That's Genesis. Anytime. We've all fallen for that one. It doesn't work. It's deception. That's about to be what happens here in this passage. There's a guy named Bar-Jesus, which means son of salvation. That's uh, important here in a minute. He's also called Elymas in this passage. We'll read that. It's the same guy. He said, he was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, would be like the equivalent of the governor. Uh, it's a high-ranking government official here. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God, which is interesting. He's got his own personal sorcerer, who's, by the way, a Jewish sorcerer, which also, that's almost an oxymoron, because Jews were forbidden from getting involved in sorcery. They're supposed to be stoned if they got involved in this. But in the first century, there were Jews that did it. Some were just rebellious to Judaism. Others, and this is far more dangerous, and this is what this guy was doing, they did it under the guise of Orthodox Judaism, that they were teaching the right things. They just know more than other people. We see the same thing in Christianity. You hear about, you know, the prosperity gospel, or the social gospel, or the... Let me, those are false gospels. The gospel is the gospel. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins, raising again. That's the gospel. And so you get other people that are, you know, if, you, if you just believed enough, you'd be healthy. And well, Go to the hospital and tell them that. If you, if you, just, if you would be wealthy and, it, and they predict things for the future and no one ever says anything to them, even though the Bible says you should be stoned if you predict things in God's name and it doesn't happen, but we ignored that. And that's the kind of guy this guy is in this passage. And so we're familiar with this type of guy. He's a consultant to the, to the government leader, Sergius Paulus. But Sergius Paulus, it says in verse 7, he still wants the truth. It teaches us something about humans. Oh, we all want to do our own thing. We long for the truth. The scriptures say that God's purpose is eternity in each one of our hearts. We want the truth. We're made in his image. We long for that. Jesus Christ is truth. Verse 8 says, But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, Bar-Jesus, Elymas, same guy, opposed them, and he tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. And so here we see the opposition. Look at what Paul does. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, and will be from the rest of the book in Acts, he'll be called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Wow. 
doesn't sound very Christian, Paul. Whatever happened to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, from your lips they should flowest thou us, Paul. Some people won't like this, that Paul talked this way. This isn't very kind. This doesn't seem very nice. It's not very gentle. And those are all fruits of the Spirit. Go back to verse 9 with me, please. Verse 9 says that Saul was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. These are words coming directly from God. It says that what he did is he looked straight at Elymas. Now, I, I've never seen Paul. Let me see renditions of his picture. But I don't know what he looked like. So when I think about him giving the look, I don't know if you were when you were kids, did your parents ever give you the look? Like maybe their friends were around and they are looking at you like if you don't stop doing that, you're going to be in a lot of pain in a couple seconds. My mom had a look. She'd do this thing with her bottom jaw. She put her teeth out. That scared me until I was about 26. And she just straightened me right up with that look because of the experiences that I had look associated with and that's what had to happen and so paul's giving him a look look straight at elements this is not there's no confusion who he's talking to here isn't the if anyone were to ever do these kinds of things it'd be bad no it says you are a child of the devil interesting because he was presenting himself as the son of salvation by jesus and paul's saying no let's call this like it is and he's dealing with this in an urgent matter because this he's dealing with it unlike many of us would do but this is a big deal they're sharing the gospel with the proconsul paulus and this guy's about to come to Christ. And then here Elymas is, he tries to twist the truth, pervert the truth. You know what that means? It's not just a direct contradiction. He's trying to take the things that Paul is saying and twist them enough. It's kind of like saying, you know, God loves everybody. True. We have to say, you don't have anything to worry about. Not true. Jesus died for the world. True. Everybody's okay. Not true. He's twisting the truth. He's perverting the truth. Enough that it would send counsel to hell and so that's why he's dealing with this like this it's such a big deal and many times we treat salvation like it's not that big of a deal like oh, i got other stuff to i mean i gotta plan on my retirement decide which color of this thing to get and i gotta make sure i got this next deal to do and we gotta pick up the stuff got this grocery store list and all these things that we do you know what's happening we're being deceived we're being distracted and the plan that god has for us we don't see it like that big of a deal. Do you know that every day it's estimated 150,000 people leave this earth? They die. The vast majority of them step into a Christless eternity. That means they're going to hell. And you could say, well, I don't believe in hell. They do. As Jesus talked about it, it's a place of eternal torment, fire, where the fire's not quenched and the worm never dies. Terrible place. And we, say, we see people and we go, oh, I hope somebody tells them. I'll just... I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for another opportunity. I'm going to pray somebody. Maybe they'll just know. And Paul's looking at this and he's going, this is serious stuff. He's saying, basically, shut up, Elemis. You're a liar and a deceiver and I'm proclaiming the truth. I'm trying to imagine it like this. Imagine today after church, you go home, whether it's an apartment, at your house, whatever it is, and imagine you have children. So if we have children or not, just imagine you have a child that's about 10 years old or younger. And somebody pulls up, and, and they're kidnappers, or human traffickers, pedophiles, and they're going to try and take your kid. Right now there's an alert in North Raleigh that there's a car that's going around, a uh, gold car. They think it's a Nissan Maxima. They're not sure exactly the make and model. And there's two men in the car, and three times they've tried to take kids. And all three times, praise the Lord, they haven't been able to get the kids. Most recently off in Norwood, uh, they chased a kid into a ravine. He got injured, and but got away. Imagine that gold car comes pulling up out in front of your place, and your son or daughter starts walking towards that car. What are you going to do? Can I tell you, as a parent, I'll tell you, whatever you have to do. You'll do whatever it takes at that moment. Now, can you imagine for a moment, you see your son or daughter walking towards those two men and go, I sure hope somebody tells them. I'm just going to go pray that they make the right decision because that's not the right decision. I'm just going to pray that they would see that this is not a good option for them. See, Paul sees this the way that it really is. He hasn't been deceived. Paul sees that Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor, he's a child of God that God died for. And he's sharing with him the most important, he's got the most important information in the world, and he's sharing it with them, and this guy's trying to twist it. He says, stop that. Because you're about to go to hell, and so is he, and, and this is too important. And look at what he goes on to say. He says to him, he pr pronounces a cursing on this guy, but it's a gracious cursing. He says, now the hand of the Lord is against you. That's bad. You're going to be blind, and for a time, so that's gracious, he's given him time to repent. 
You've been able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mists of darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Ironic when you consider that the reason why he's hired by the governor is to tell him about the future, and now he can't even get out of the room. It's the same judgment that Paul himself was familiar with. When the proconsul saw this, saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed, not at the miracle, at the teaching about the Lord. And what's that teaching? The teaching was this, proconsul, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Not because of your a position in the government, not because you were handsome, not because you were talented, not because of the amount of times you went to church, not because of... There was nothing about you. And he was amazed at that teaching. Did he do that for me? And what did he do? He responded the only appropriate way to respond is he, he surrendered his life to him. He believed in him. And that's what some of you need to do today. Don't play church. Trust Christ as your Savior. He'll turn your life upside down. Yep, and it'll be better. Some of you, you need to turn to Him. You've been living a life of destruction. You're afraid of what you're going to lose. Do you know what you're going to gain? You're going to gain a relationship with the God who created you and wove you together in your mother's womb. He loves you. And each one of us that have already trusted Christ, you have that news. And God sends you out on a mission. Macro mission. Great commission to go make disciples. And where does he send you? Different places, each one of us. And some of you don't feel like it's that special. And here's why. Because you've never been brought up front in front of the church and no one laid hands on you and said, you go and disciple those children at home this week. You go to the science industry. You go to the tech industry, to the retail industry, to the service industry, to whatever industry you're in. And you know what? We want to do that for you as a church today. You don't all have to come up here. What we're going to do is, I've asked a couple leaders in Theater 14 and in Theater 9, here where we're at, to just go to different spots in this room. We're going to pray over you today. Symbolically, like we laid hands on the Madagascar team, we're going to lay hands on you. And we want to send you out on the mission that God has for you. Now, if you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've got a prayer burden, we've got a response team after the service that would love to pray with you, you can talk to them out in the hall. But right now, we're praying for the believers here. And we're going to pray specifically for moms, for unemployed, for doctors, for lawyers, for teachers, for janitors, for whoever it is that God lays on these different men's hearts to pray for as we send you out into this world and commission you the mission that you have. It's the same, but it's different. It's the same difference. And so I'm just going to ask these guys to pray out loud as they feel led. And uh, Jed, maybe come and play some guitar while we're, while we're praying together. And so just if you would... As you feel led, gentlemen, would you pray over these folks? Just bow your heads, close your eyes, and I'll keep my hands out just symbolically laying them on each one of you. Let's Let's pray. pray.